even as we begin the Advent season, we are still going to read and preach from Colossians 3. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 3. And we will be reading from verses 12 through 17. There are a number of events in life that will change you. Um, And there are a number of events in life that that make you better or worse, depending on how you react to them. I, uh, I am not underemphasizing the fact that marriage is one of those things. So um, when I first got married, I remember one night very clearly that my life was going to change. I was sitting on the couch with my wife, and we had decided that we were going to go to the store, or I can't even remember what it was, but we had to leave the house. I think we were going to the store to buy ice cream, or this was back when you couldn't just get movies on your TV by sitting in front of it. You had to actually get up and go to Blockbuster to get it. So, um, yes, I am that old. I know I don't look it. Uh, but we, we decided to get up and go, and we were already sort of in, in pajamas, right? And so we say, okay, well, let's go. And she gets up, and she goes into the bedroom, and I walk and put my coat on, and she comes out, and she looks at me. She does this. She says, nope. And I was floored. I was like, listen, we're just going to the store to get groceries. Certainly sweatpants are okay. And she did, nope. It turns out that my life was forever to change. And... I know most of you, I know most of you are thinking that seems unduly harsh. Um, like she was way out of line. Uh, but it turns out that she's 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 kind of right. Um, and and the deal was that when I leave the house now, anytime I leave the house, especially with my wife at my side, I am not simply portraying myself to people. Okay, I might be an idiot. But she doesn't want to be known as the woman who married the idiot, okay? So she wants to, like, lower that as much as possible. And that, that's right and true and good. That, that I do, as, as we have been married and we have been united in one flesh, I do reflect upon my wife quite considerably with how I dress, with the way I present myself in public, not just by dress, but by attitude and demeanor as well. We, ourselves, carry the name of Christ with us. We are Christians, And as such, we also represent him to the world, fairly or unfairly, sinful or not. You portray him to the world, and how you dress, how you walk, how you speak matters a lot. And Paul picks this up in Colossians chapter 3. Read with me, beginning in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God add his richest blessing to this reading of his word. The first thing I want to talk to you about today is that if we are going to rightly walk in the Lord, we need to have the right authenticity. We've got to have the right authenticity. 
you can't throw a stone today in, in sort of popular Christian culture without running into this word authentic. This is what millennials apparently are seeking. They're seeking authenticity. And this is sort of a reaction against a lot of the seeker-sensitive churches from the 80s and the 70s and 80s and 90s. And it doesn't really have to do with the sinfulness of those churches or even the attitude of those churches. So those churches realized quite rightly that a lot of the culture around was kind of put off by the church, that there were rites and symbolisms that they didn't understand when they came in. And so those churches sought to minimize those and make, make churches more friendly for people who are coming in. Some of these churches grew vast, but these churches were also then filled with a lack of connection to Christian doctrine in some cases and into Christian tradition, and, and frankly, some people sort of rejected them as being false. That they weren't any way, shape, or form really distinct from the world. They, they put on nice concerts because that's what people expected when they came in and heard musicians playing, and they, they left thinking that it was a little bit, well, fake. A woman named Rachel Held Evans writes, and I don't subscribe to almost anything she says, but I think that as an influential voice, we should hear what she says here. This is back from 2015 in the Washington Post. When I left the church at age 29, full of doubt and disillusionment, I wasn't looking for a better produced Christianity. I was looking for a truer Christianity, a more authentic Christianity. I didn't like how gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people were being treated at my evangelical faith community. I had questions about science and faith, biblical interpretation and theology. I felt lonely in my doubts. And contrary to popular belief, the fog machines and light shows at those slick evangelical conferences didn't make things better for me. They made the whole endeavor feel shallow, forced, and fake. That's probably true. It's probably true. And we can appreciate the authenticity, right? Because a lot of these people would say, we read scripture and we read that we were filthy and dirty and in darkness. And, and it seems like a lot of Christianity today just wants to bypass that and only talk about the nice, pretty, shiny things. But they want to say, listen, we need to have frank discussions about the fact that we are filthy, dirty, and, and in darkness. We have pains and sorrows, and we are people that are filled with those, and we need to rightfully talk about those things. That is true. One person's authenticity is not another's. And frankly, sometimes this appeal to authenticity sounds more like Popeye than Paul. It's more I am who I am and not I am who I will be. See, there are easily made claims to authenticity that leave you exactly where you are. A lot of this, you can tell, is around the idea of homosexuality and, and sexual issues like that, where people claim, I was simply made this way. And we don't need to back off of, of treating that as true. They, they were made in such a way that they have a pull towards that sin. It's okay, we can say that, but that doesn't mean that that's where they stay. We are pulled towards sin, every single one of us, in different ways. But we don't stay there. We talked about that last week. We have to move forward. But you can't talk about being made in a certain way. Remember, we at Christians don't believe that there's one nature, that you were made that way, and therefore that's how you are. We believe in two distinct natures. Christ is remaking you. You are born again. You are made with a circumcision, made without hands. The Holy Spirit has enlivened you and made you again. Go read through Romans 7. 
Read how Paul struggles in his life, dealing with one person who desires in his flesh nothing but sin and another who desires only to keep what God says is good and right and holy. There is a clear struggle in that. Even in Colossians, look back at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. You, you, your old nature, you are trying to put it off. This is what he talks about when he says, you have put off the flesh in circumcision. You have literally gotten out of yourself. But you're putting on something new. You are a divided person, Christian, and you always will be here. Being authentic to that is not right and good. You're not to be authentic to who you are, but to what Christ has called you to be. Secondly, the fact of the matter is we do change. We do. Every single person in here is changing. There's a huge amount of social science that is done about how we perceive ourselves. And it's really interesting. You are not the same person you were physically or spiritually, mentally. You are not the same person you were. All of your atoms could be brand new atoms. Every single one of them could be distinct and new over the course of your lifetime. You are not who you were when you were 13. I'm not who I was when I was 26. And I'm not who I'm going to be when I'm 54 if the Lord tarries and I live. We all change. The question is, what is driving the change? And frankly, without a search for holiness, my guess would be that the world is changing you more than you are changing towards God's standards. Now, Paul says this in Romans 12 too, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You are to be authentic to what God has called you to be and what he has told you you are. That is where we find our authenticity. Christian, you are not a hypocrite nor inauthentic for striving to be what Jesus has called you to be even if you are not that. You are not a hypocrite for not being what you want to be. You're a hypocrite for not pretending for not even trying to be something else. But if Christ has called you to be holy, you will never be a hypocrite, Christian, for trying to be holy. That is who you are to be. That is who you are to be authentic to. Secondly, you have to have the right attire. Paul clearly says, put on then, as a, as a picture, a metaphor of clothing this is how you are to clothe yourself when you go off. And he, he gives you several terms here, compassionate hearts. You are not to be like Job's friends. You are to be empathetic to people. Remember the story of Job. He has everything ripped away from him. God allows Satan to take it away from him. And then Satan, seeing that Job does not turn his back upon God, says, let me go and visit him and I, I, will, I will touch him and I will give him sores and boils and I will hurt him physically. And then watch how he turns. And he does so. And thus starts the long book of Job, where Job's friends come and for seven days sit there and do nothing. And then the first one opens his mouth and immediately is, so let's talk about how you screwed this up, Job. There's a fair amount of compassion in the first seven days to what he has gone through, but there is a total and complete lack of empathy. When you have compassionate hearts, you do want to present the truth to people. And that sometimes that is dealing with sin. 
Sometimes that is dealing with the frank issues that people have messed up their lives and they need to deal with it. But we have to handle that in such a way that we are empathetic and sympathetic with them. You cannot cram the truth, the truth down somebody's gullet and think they're going to swallow it whole. It doesn't work. You are to have compassion and empathy for one another. You are to be kind. Simply said, that's not harsh. It's getting harder and harder to live your lives like that today. I'm going to tell you, face-to-face is much easier. But Christians, you've got to watch how you act online. You will be held accountable to every idle word you speak and specifically every idle word you type. It is easy to hide behind anonymous comments and be a ruthless jerk to people. But you are to be kind. Luke 9, 51 through 58 says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. He didn't rebuke the Samaritan town, but he did rebuke his followers. Why? Because they were far, far too unkind. Matthew 12 says something of the same thing. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. This is a quotation from Isaiah. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not quench. That is kindness. There is also humility. We do not think better of ourselves than we ought. It is not simply saying that you have to deny yourself the truth, but it's actually having a true opinion of yourself. Paul says that you are to outdo one another in showing honor in Romans 12.10. Think of others as better than yourself. There is meekness, there is a mildness and a timidness to how you go about. You don't go around claiming what is rightfully yours. This is why Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Because they don't need to claim it, they rest upon God to give it to them. In Luke 14, 7 through 11, he tells the the parable of a man who goes to a wedding feast. And he says, listen, when you go to a wedding feast, don't sit in the place of honor. Because you're going to get embarrassed. He's going to come around and he's going to say, you're going to have to move down, Bob. Move down. He says, but instead, move your place to the lowest seat of honor. Go to the most humble spot you can. And then if he speaks to you, it is to call you up and praise and honor in front of everyone. Be meek. Be patient. We all know what patience is. We hate it and we need it. Bearing with one another. Listen, Paul, Paul knows you. You are dirty, filthy, and full of darkness. You're going to be rude and mean to one another. You're going to do it to others, and others are going to do it to you. So you had better prepare yourself to bear with them. 
you call yourselves brothers and sisters. This is not an optional family. We use family things. We use family metaphor because we're actually a family here. So like brothers and sisters, you have to put up with these people. Bear with them. They have to grow as well. If they're not where you are, bear with them. Let them grow in Christ. Give them room to grow. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving on each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Just basic Christian doctrine. Because the Lord has forgiven you. How many parables can we go to to speak of, if you have been forgiven much, you are going to forgive much? As a Christian, because Christ has forgiven so much of your sin, you have to be able to forgive and be gracious to everyone around you. Knowing what has been handed to you, how can you be anything but that? Now, in all these things, all of them, Paul isn't doing anything special. It's not as though these things are not known in the world, and specifically, like they're not known in the wider Greco-Roman culture. The Colossians aren't going, patience, my God goodness, this man's a genius. We had never even thought of being patient before. They, they knew of patience. They knew what these things were. They knew of them as virtue. Our culture knows of these things as virtues. They might not act on them, but they know that these things are virtues. But where Paul does step out, where Paul does seem to be a little bit off of Greco-Roman culture is in his next statement where he talks about love. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's a belt. He says you bind it together. It keeps everything in place. Without love, all of these things can be turned inward. Even the most most self-abasing virtue that, that is listed here can be turned inwards. You've heard people who are only humble because they want a compliment back. The cheesecake was good. Oh, it wasn't my best. But no, no, seriously, it was good. It was great, you know? You all know people who do that. They talk so humbly about themselves only because they want it filtered back to them. Every single one of these is not a virtue when done sinfully. You can forgive sinfully. You can cheapen and lighten the grace of God to where it has no meaning at all. Just wave everything away. Just wave it away. Simple, I'm sorry, will do. No true repentance. Compassion can be given without conviction. Kindness can be given without truth. Patience can be given without any sense of urgency at all. But love won't let you focus these things inward so that you can get what you want. Like so many people who dress today and act today solely so that other people will recognize them. Like a husband who only wears nice clothes out, not to honor his wife, but only to get recognition for himself. Love immediately makes these things outward focused. You're humble, not because you can get compliments that way, but you're humble specifically because it's good for other people. You're patient, not because it's something nice for you to have so that people will look at you and be like, well, that guy is really patient. You're patient because it's good that other people know that you're patient because you mirror God in that manner. Love immediately pushes these things out 
They don't let them become vices. Third, we must have the right authority. Paul adds in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is speaking more than, than sort of being judicial authority or, or, or being something of a kingly authority. It is more like a referee or an official in games. And so let them officiate your decisions. How are you supposed to make decisions? There's clearly issues where we can talk about sin here, but even in non-sin issues, he's saying that the peace of Christ ought to officiate what is true and what isn't. Now, we know officiating can be bad, right? We know that officials can blatantly miss holdings and offsides, and they can blatantly miss personal fouls, and they can spot balls very, very wrong and cost big, big issues in games. We all know that that is true, righteous, and amen. Um, But nevertheless, when that stuff happens, that is the official word. You can complain about it until you're blue and maize in the face, but it's not going to change... It's not going to change anything. That game is over and done because the official said so. They have the right to place victory on someone's shoulder and defeat on someone else's. That is their right. And Paul is saying that right in, your, in affairs of, of you, between you and your brothers and sisters, has to be the peace of Christ. What would the peace of Christ have you do? The peace of Christ is not just looking vertically at the peace we have with God, although it is that. It's also horizontally. How do you deal with others when they do things that you think are wrong? And again, it could be sinful, but even in non-sinful instances. I've been in a church where we were recommending a man for music ministry, and there were several people within the church, a faction of the church, that strongly disliked this man and did not want him to be the music minister in our church. And their complaint was, listen, if we vote, and it's supposed to be 66%, if we vote and it turns out 75-25-4, what happens to the 25%? Are we just ignored? What if we don't get what we want? Well, I mean, come on. True. The 75% has to listen to the complaints and the real problems that the 25% have. But that doesn't mean at all that the 25% doesn't have to realize that the 75% might be right. That's how we rule in the church. You've all heard stories about churches splitting over the color of the carpet. Those things happen. And they happen because people want their own positions more than they want the peace of Christ to rule in the church. It's sinful. And more than that, it's not a small matter. Listen, when we are called the body of Christ, right, you realize that what we're doing, when Paul uses language like, although many, you are one, that sounds a lot like something else that we talk about, except instead of using many, we use three, right? When Christian churches split, especially over minor issues, not sin, but over the color of a carpet, you are saying something fundamental about the God you serve, This is not a minor issue. To not let the peace of Christ rule among you for non-essential things is a given. It's got to be a given. If you are unwilling to let go of that stuff, you are going to slander the name of Jesus Christ. You break and rip apart the very concept of the Trinity amongst brothers and sisters and especially to the outside world. 
It cannot happen. We have to have the right authority. Fourthly, we have to have the right attitude. Notice the kind of stuff we're talking about. We're talking about peace, not not sort of a, a, a weak-willed peace, but a real peace, the peace between God and man, the peace that we are to have between brothers and sisters. We sang just yesterday in prayer meeting, it came upon a midnight clear. And uh, I love one of those verses. It says, uh, talking about the angels proclaiming um, the gospel um, several times throughout the, the, the birth story. Um, it came upon a midnight clear, says this, Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man, at war with man, hears not the love song which they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. You're so busy fighting with one another that you can't hear the good news that's being proclaimed to you, is what that's saying. These are, these are massive issues. Peace and, and even love. Love is an incredibly difficult thing. I've kind of passed over it, but we'll talk about it in the future. Love is not so easy as to just say it, it, it settles every issue. We of all people, today of all days, ought to know that simply appealing to love doesn't cut the mustard. You have to know what you're appealing to when you appeal to love. What does it mean? that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. But in the midst of all of that really deep and really important stuff, Paul simply drops and be thankful. As though it's on par with the importance of everything that's come before. It's hard to not think of thankfulness as something that is simply a, a nice thing to do. It's something that you're supposed to say to your waiter because you don't want to be that huge jerk that we got done talking about not too long ago. Because you want to sh- have your kids respect Nana and Papa when they give them gifts. Because you're supposed to be this kind of person. And Thanksgiving is a lot more than that. Romans 1 sort of always changed my mind on Thanksgiving. I've mentioned this before, but we will read it again it helps to have it mentioned more than once. Romans 1 is this very forthright and dark depiction of what sin does to people, of how people who are made in the image of God turn away from God and deteriorate. Just, just the seams get pulled apart on them and they, they get pulled into nothingness. Romans 1 is just such an important chapter and it starts with this. Romans 1 in verse 18 The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's that's all big stuff. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, that he is different from everything you see around you and he's more powerful than anything that you can imagine. Those things are very clear about God, he says. They've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God. They were idolaters. They're they're going to make false gods. They know that God is different than everything they see around them, and yet what are they going to do? They're going to turn to everything they see around them in order to fashion gods. 
That's idolatry. That's the big idolatry. That is the sin of all sins. That is the sin. Paul starts there. And then he says, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. Like, why? Because as creatures, everything we have, everything is from God. And to be ungrateful to God is to deny him as God. It is idolatry. To look at the things that God gives you, life and breath, food and water, everything that you have, a heart that pumps blood around, clotting agents that that keep it from leaking out all over, without clotting so much that you get embolisms and aneurysms all over your body. All of that is due to the miracle of God that he preserves you every second of every day. To not be thankful for that is to deny that you need him to do that. It is to deny God himself. It is to deny that you are a creature that needs a creator who lovingly and carefully watches over you. So Paul doesn't lightly say, be thankful. He means it. Every minute of every day, you are to be thankful that God exists, that he holds you together, that he gives you breath and food and water and life, not to mention love and everything kind that he richly pours out on you. Be thankful. You have to have the right attitude. And lastly, you have to have the right adoration. You have to have the right adoration. I have a bit of a problem with how the ESV puts Colossians 3.16, so I will read the same passage from the NIV, and you can sort of see the difference. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. I don't like psalms from the Spirit, but nevertheless. What he, the difference between these two versions is that Singing hymns and teaching and admonishing are not different. But what Paul is saying is, the word of Christ will dwell richly in you as you teach and admonish one another, not just through preaching, but through psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. The Christian church is getting better at not sort of bifurcating Sunday mornings into worship in song and teaching in sermons. We've gotten much, much better at realizing that we worship God both by adoring him in music and listening to him in preaching. That as the word of God is preached, we listen to him, and that is an act of worship in and of itself. We've gotten very good at that. What we're not so great at is realizing that the reverse is true. That we teach and admonish as much in song as we do in the pulpit. Every bit as much. There's a reason why we have song. There's a reason why God made music. It's not an accident. There's a reason why God made poetry. It's not an accident. There's a reason why one of the only proper responses to God is to pick up a guitar. Not me, because that would be horrible, but for other people to have Micah pick up a guitar. That's one of the only right responses we have. Listen to Every single one of us has, has had a moment in our lives where we realize that what we feel in our soul and in our head cannot be anywhere close to appropriately put in the English language. 
And we realize that those three words, I love you, just, just fall flat, right? I mean, we say that to our spouse when we're leaving in the morning. We kiss our kids on the foreheads and we say, I love you, bye. And sometimes it's simply a way to affirm it. But there are other times when you look at your loved ones and you, you realize that word kind of stinks. That doesn't carry anywhere near the meaning. I, I say that I love brownies. And I honestly mean that. But I also honestly don't mean it the same way I love my daughters. This is why men and women have, since the very, very first days of creation, have picked up pen and paper and written songs. Because that is how we actually communicate love to one another, is songs and poetry. Because there is a richness in those things that simple words don't have. Now, what Paul is getting at is that richness that is in song has to also indicate how richly the word of Christ dwells in you. We have to be careful at the type of music that we listen to. I'm going to tell you, you have to be incredibly careful to the type of music you listen to. And I don't mean that you can't listen to classical 70s rock or pop from the 80s. That's not what I mean. I mean you've got to be more careful about the type of Christian music you listen to. Because there is a lot of Christian music out there that does not dwell upon the word of God richly. It is easy and it is light. It is not well thought through. It is bumbling and it is fumbling and it is done to make a dollar. And it is horrible for your soul. And those Christian artists need to be admonished that the same appeal of James 3, that not many of you are to be teachers, applies to them as well. Because when you put pen to paper, when you make out lyrics, and then you present them to the wider world, you are doing nothing less than teaching the world truths about God. And if you do that wrong, there is judgment coming upon you of a very, very severe kind. You do not sit, you should not sit, under bad preaching and teaching you should not ever listen to bad singing and songwriting either. The question for each of us is not to pick out songs and to go through them individually and to say, this is a good song, this is a bad song, this artist rocks, this one's horrible. We're not going to do that. But it's to ask yourself, when you listen to this song, would I describe this as the word of Christ dwelling richly? Does this make the word of Christ dwell richly in me when I hear this song, sung by this artist? Or does this seem flippant and thrown out for a buck? Christians, we walk in a cruel world, but as we walk, we need to adorn ourselves correctly. There are moments in your life that change you forever. Marriage is one of those. Salvation is certainly another. We are no longer our own, but we are united to one whom we will present ourselves to. As a church and as the church, we are married to Christ. Revelation 19, 6-8 says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude 
like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. You are to prepare yourself for the groom. That is our job. And to prepare ourselves, we put on holy and righteous acts because he is worthy of everything that we can give to him. Because he will not be seen with a dirty bride. Because unlike my wife and I, we'll reverse that around, he is clean and pure and holy and worthy of all of our praise and admiration. Let us walk then in a way that is suitable to that. Let us walk in maturity in our Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are good and kind to us and we owe you all things. You have been, as always, generous with your love and your kindness, with your mercy and your grace, no less than in the giving of your own Son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. Let us then walk in the light, straining and stretching to be holy, not so that we might earn your grace, but Father God, because of it. It is in your name we pray. Amen.